Welcome back. Today, we delve deeper into the Underdark, as we begin the second book in the Legend of Drizzt series, Exile. Prelude. The monster lumbered along the quiet corridors of the Underdark, its eight scaly legs occasionally scuffing the stone. It did not recoil at its own echoing sound, fearing the revealing noise, nor did it scurry for cover, expecting the rush of another predator. For even in the dangers of the Underdark, this creature knew only security, confident of its ability to defeat any foe. Its breath reeked of deadly poison. The hard edges of its claws dug deep gouges into the solid stone, and the rows of spear-like teeth that lined its wicked maw could tear through the thickest of hides. But worst of all was the monster's gaze, the gaze of a basilisk, which could transmute into solid stone any living thing it fell upon. This creature, huge and terrible, was among the greatest of its kind. It did not know fear. The hunter watched the basilisk pass as he had watched it earlier the same day. The eight-legged monster was the intruder here, coming into the hunter's domain. He had witnessed the basilisk kill several of his rothe, the small cattle-like creatures that enhanced his table, with its poisoned breath, and the rest of the herd had fled blindly down the endless tunnels, perhaps never to return. The hunter was angry. He watched now as the monster trudged down the narrow passageway, just the route the hunter had suspected that it would take. He slid his weapons from their sheaths, gaining confidence, as always, as soon as he felt their fine balance. The hunter had owned them since his childhood, and even after nearly three decades of almost constant use, they bore only the slightest hints of wear. Now they would be tested again. The hunter replaced his weapons and waited for the sound that would spur him into motion. A throaty growl stopped the basilisk in its tracks. The monster peered around curiously, though its poor eyes could distinguish little beyond a few feet. Again came the growl, and the basilisk hunched down, waiting for the challenger, its next victim, to spring out and die. Far behind, the hunter came out of his cubby, running impossibly fast along the tiny cracks and spurs in the corridor walls. In his magical cloak, his pivifui, he was invisible against the stone, and with his agile and practiced movements, he made not a sound. He came impossibly silent, impossibly fast. The growl issued again from ahead of the basilisk, but had not come any closer. The impatient monster shuffled forward, anxious to get on with the killing. When the basilisk crossed under the low archway, an impenetrable globe of absolute darkness enveloped its head, and the monster stopped suddenly and took a step back, as the hunter knew it would. The hunter was upon it then. He leaped from the passage wall, executing three separate actions before he even reached his mark. First, he cast a simple spell, which lined the basilisk's head in glowing blue and purple flames. Next, he pulled his hood down over his face, for he did not need his eyes in battle, and against a basilisk a stray gaze could only bring his doom. Then, drawing his deadly scimitars, he landed on the monster's back and ran up its scales to get to its head. The basilisk reacted as soon as the dancing flames outlined its head. They did not burn, but their outline made the hunter an easy target. 
The basilisk spun back, but before its head had turned halfway, the first scimitar had dived into one of its eyes. The creature reared and thrashed, trying to get at the hunter. It breathed its noxious fumes and whipped its head about. The hunter was the faster. He kept behind the maw, out of death's way. His second scimitar found the basilisk's other eye. Then the hunter unleashed his fury. The basilisk was the intruder. It had killed his rothe. Blow after savage blow bashed into the monster's armored head, flecked off scales, and dived for the flesh beneath. The basilisk understood its peril, but still believed that it would win. It had always won, if it could only get its poisonous breath in line with the furious hunter. The second foe, the growling feline foe, was upon the basilisk then, having sprung toward the flame-lined maw without fear. The great cat latched on and took no notice of the poisonous fumes, for it was a magical beast, impervious to such attacks. Panther claws dug deep lines into the basilisk gums, letting the monster drink its own blood. Behind the huge head, the hunter struck again and again, a hundred times and more, savagely, Viciously, the scimitars slammed through the scaly armor, through the flesh, and through the skull, battering the basilisk down into the blackness of death. Long after the monster lay still, the pounding of the bloodied scimitars slowed. The hunter removed his hood and inspected the broken pile of gore at his feet and the hot stains of blood on his blades. He raised the dripping scimitars into the air and proclaimed his victory with a scream of primal exultation. He was the hunter, and this was his home. When he had thrown all of his rage out in that scream, though, the hunter looked upon his companion and he was ashamed. The panther's saucer eyes judged him, even if the panther did not. The cat was the hunter's only link to the past, to the civilized existence the hunter once had known. Come, he whispered as he slid the scimitars back into their sheaths. He reveled in the sound of the words as he spoke them. It was the only voice he had heard for a decade. But every time he spoke now, the words seemed more foreign and came to him with some difficulty. Would he lose that ability too, as he'd lost every other aspect of his former existence? This the hunter feared greatly, for without his voice, he could not summon the panther. He then truly would be alone. Down the quiet corridors of the Underdark went the hunter and his cat, making not a sound, disturbing no rubble. Together they had come to know the dangers of this hushed world. Together they had learned to survive. Despite the victory, though, the hunter wore no smile this day. He feared no foes, but was no longer certain whether his courage came from confidence or from apathy about living. Perhaps survival was not enough. Part 1. The Hunter I remember vividly the day I walked away from the city of my birth, the city of my people. All the Underdark lay before me, a life of adventure and excitement, with possibilities that lifted my heart. More than that, though, I left Menzabaranzan with the belief that I could now live my life in accordance with my principles. I had Gwenhuyver at my side, and my scimitars belted at my hips. My future was my own to determine. But that drow, the young Driz Duarden, who walked out of Menzabaranzan on that fated day, barely into my fourth decade of life, could not begin to understand the truth of time, 
of how its passage seemed as slow when the moments were not shared with others. In my youthful exuberance, I look forward to several centuries of life. How do you measure centuries when a single hour seems a day, and a single day seems a year? Beyond the cities of the Underdark, there is food for those who know how to find it, and safety for those who know how to hide. More than anything else, though, beyond the teeming cities of the Underdark, there is solitude. As I became a creature of the empty tunnels, surviving becoming easier and more difficult all at once, I gained in the physical skills and experience necessary to live on. I could defeat almost anything that wandered into my chosen domain, and those few monsters that I could not defeat, I could surely flee or hide from. It did not take me long, however, to discover one nemesis that I could neither defeat nor flee. It followed me wherever I went. Indeed, the farther I ran, the more it closed in around me. My enemy was solitude, the indeterminable incessant silence of hushed corridors. Looking back on it these many years later, I find myself amazed and appalled at the changes I endured under such an existence. The very identity of every reasoning being is defined by the language, the communication between that being and others around it. Without that link, I was lost. When I left Menzoberranzan, I determined that my life would be based on principles, my strength adhering to unbending beliefs. Yet after only a few months alone in the Underdark, the only purpose for my survival was my survival. I had become a creature of instinct, calculating and cunning but not thinking, not using my mind for anything more than directing the newest kill. Gwenhyva saved me, I believe. The same companion that had pulled me from certain death in the clutches of monsters unnumbered rescued me from a death of emptiness, less dramatic, perhaps, but no less fatal. I found myself living for those moments when the cat would walk by my side, when I had another living creature to hear my words, strained though they had become. In addition to every other value, Gwenhyver became my time clock, for I knew that the cat could come forth from the astral plane for a half-day every other day. Only after my ordeal had ended did I realize how critical that one quarter of my time actually was. Without Gwenhyver, I would not have found the resolve to continue. I would never have maintained the strength to survive. Even when Gwenhyver stood beside me, I found myself growing more and more ambivalent toward the fighting. I was secretly hoping that some denizen of the Underdark would prove stronger than I. Could the pain of tooth or talon be greater than the emptiness of the silence? I think not. Drizzt Duarden Chapter 1 Anniversary Present Matron Malice Duarden shifted uneasily on the stone throne in the small and darkened anteroom to the great chapel of House Duarden. To the Dark Elves, who measured time's passage in decades, this was a day to be marked in the annals of Malice's house, the tenth anniversary of the ongoing covert conflict between the Duarden family and House Hunet. Matron Malice, never one to miss a celebration, had a special present prepared for her enemies. Brisa Duarden, Malice's eldest daughter, a large and powerful drow female, paced about the anteroom anxiously, a not uncommon sight. It should be finished by now, she grumbled as she kicked a small three-legged stool. It skidded and tumbled, 
chipping away a piece of mushroom stem seat. Patience, my daughter, Malice replied, somewhat recriminatory, though she shared Breeza's sentiments. Jarlaxle is a careful one. Breeza turned away at the mention of the outrageous mercenary and moved to the room's ornately carved stone doors. Malice did not miss the significance of her daughter's actions. You do not approve of Jarlaxle and his band, the matron mother stated flatly. They are houseless rogues, she spat in response, still not turning to face her mother. There is no place in Menjabaranzan for houseless rogues. They disrupt the natural order of our society, and they are males. They serve us well, Malice reminded her. Breeza wanted to argue about the extreme cost of hiring the mercenary band, but she wisely held her tongue. She and Malice had been at odds almost continually since the start of the Duarden-Hunet War. Without breaking the earth, we could not take action against our enemies, Malice continued. Using the mercenaries, the houseless rogues, as you have named them, allows us to wage war without implicating our house as the perpetrator. Then why not be done with it? Breeza demanded, spinning back toward the throne. We kill a few of Annette's soldiers, they kill a few of ours, and all the while, both houses continue to recruit replacements. It will not end. The only winners in the conflict are the mercenaries of Brigandy Arth and whatever band matron Sinefe Honette has hired, feeding off the coffers of both houses. Watch your tone, my daughter. Malice growled as an angry reminder. You are addressing a matron mother. Breeza turned away again. We should have attacked House Honette immediately on the night Zach Nefane was sacrificed. She dared to grumble. You forget the actions of your youngest brother on that night, Malice replied evenly. But the matron mother was wrong. If she lived a thousand more years, Breeza would not forget Driz's actions on the night that he had forsaken his family, trained by Zach Nefane, Malice's favorite lover, and reputedly the finest weapons master in all of Menzoberonson. Driz had achieved a level of fighting ability far beyond the drow norm. But Zack had also given Driz the troublesome and blasphemous attitudes that Loth, the Spider Queen deity of the Dark Elves, would not tolerate. Finally, Driz's sacrilegious ways had invoked Loth's wrath, and the Spider Queen, in turn, had demanded his death. Matron Malice, impressed by Driz's potential as a warrior, had acted boldly on Driz's behalf and had given Zack Nefane's heart to Loth to compensate for Driz's sins. She forgave Drizzt in the hope that without Zach Nefane's influences, he would amend his ways and replace the deposed weapons master. In return, though, the ungrateful Drizzt had betrayed them all and run off into the Underdark, an act that had not only robbed House Duarden of its only potential remaining weapons master, but also placed Matron Malice and the rest of the Duarden family out of Law's favor. In the disastrous end of all their efforts... House Duarden had lost its premier weapons master, the favor of Loth, and its would-be weapon master. It had not been a good day. Luckily, House Hanet had suffered similar woes on the same day, losing both its wizards in the botched attempt to assassinate Drizzt. 
With both houses weakened and in Loth's disfavor, the expected war had been turned into a calculated series of covert raids. Breeza would never forget. A knock at the anteroom door startled Breeza and her mother from their private memories of that fateful time. The door swung open, and Dinan, the elder boy of the house, walked in. "'Greetings, matron mother,' he said in appropriate manner, and dipping into a low bow, Dinan wanted his news to be a surprise, but the grin that found its way onto his face revealed everything. "'Jarlaxel has returned?' Malice snarled in glee. Dinan turned toward the open door, and the mercenary, waiting patiently in the corridor, strode in. Breeza, ever amazed at the rogue's unusual mannerisms, shook her head as Jarlaxel walked past her. Nearly every dark elf in Menzvaranzen dressed in a quiet and practical manner, in robes adorned with the symbols of the Spider Queen, or in supple chain-link armor under the folds of a magical and camouflaging pivofui cloak. Jarlaxel, arrogant and brash, followed few of the customs of Menzaboranzan's inhabitants. He was most certainly not the norm of drow society, and he flaunted the differences openly, brazenly. He wore not a cloak nor a robe, but a shimmering cape that showed every color of the spectrum both in the glow of light and in the infrared spectrum of heat-sensing eyes. The cape's magic could only be guessed, but those closest to the mercenary leader indicated that it was a very valuable item indeed. Charlaxel's vest was sleeveless and cut so high that his slender and tightly muscled stomach was open for all to view. He kept a patch over one eye, though careful observers would understand it was ornamental, for Jarlaxel often shifted it from one eye to the other. "'My dear Breeza,' Jarlaxel said over his shoulder, noting the high priestess's disdainful interest in his appearance. He spun about and bowed low, sweeping off the wide-brimmed hat. "'Another oddity.' and even more so since the hat was overly plumed in the monstrous feathers of a diatrima, a gigantic underdark bird, as he stooped. Breeza huffed and turned away at the sight of the mercenary's dipping head. Drow elves wore their thick white hair as a mantle of their station, each cut designated to reveal rank and house affiliation. Jarlaxel the rogue wore no hair at all, and from Breeza's angle his clean-shaven head appeared to be a ball of pressed onks. Jarlaxel laughed quietly at the continuing disapproval of the eldest Duarden daughter and turned back toward Matron Malice, his ample jewelry tinkling and his hard and shiny boots clumping with every step. Breeza took note of this as well, for she knew that those boots and that jewelry only seemed to make noise when Jarlaxel wished them to do so. "'It is done?' Matron Malice asked before the mercenary could even begin to offer a proper greeting." "'My dear Matron Malice,' Jarlaxel replied with a painted sigh, knowing that he could get away with the informalities in light of this grand news. "'Did you doubt me? Surely I am wounded to my heart.' Malice leaped up from her throne, her fist clenched in victory. "'De Prihanet is dead,' she proclaimed. "'The first noble victim of the war.' "'You forget Massage Hanet,' remarked Breeza. "'Slain by Driz ten years ago, and Zack Nefain Duarden,' Breeza had to add, against her better judgment. "'Killed by your own hand!' "'Zack Nefain was not noble by birth,' Malice sneered at her impertinent daughter. Breeza's words stung Malice nonetheless. Malice had decided to sacrifice Zack Nefain in Driz's stead against Breeza's recommendations. Jarlaxo cleared his throat to deflect the growing tension. 
The mercenary knew that he had to finish his business and be out of House Duarden as quickly as possible. Already he knew, though the Duarden did not, that the appointed hour drew near. "'There is a matter of my payment,' he reminded Malice. "'Dinan will see to it,' Malice replied with a wave of her hand, not turning her eyes from her daughter's pernicious stare. "'I will take my leave,' Jarlaxle said, nodding to the elder boy. Before the mercenary had taken his first step toward the door, Verna, Malice's second daughter, burst into the room, her face glowing brightly in the infrared spectrum, heated with obvious excitement. "'Damn!' Jarlaxle whispered under his breath. "'What is it?' Matron Malice demanded. "'How Sonette?' Verna cried. "'Soldiers in the compound! We're under attack!' Out in the courtyard, beyond the cavern complex, nearly five hundred soldiers of House Hunet, fully a hundred more than the house reportedly possessed, followed the blast of a lightning bolt through the House Duarden adamantine gates. The three hundred fifty soldiers of the Duarden household swarmed out of the shaped stalagmite mounds that served as their quarters to meet the attack. Outnumbered but trained by Zach Nefane, the Duarden troops formed into proper defensive positions, shielding their wizards and clerics so they might cast their offensive spells. An entire contingent of House Hunet soldiers, empowered with enchantments of flying, swooped down the cavern wall that housed the royal chambers of House Duarden. Tiny handheld crossbows clicked and thinned the ranks of the aerial force with deadly poison-tipped darts. The aerial invaders' surprise had been achieved, though, and the Duarden troops were quickly put into a precarious position. Hunnette has not the favor of Loth, Malice screamed. It would not dare to attack openly. She flinched at the refuting thunderous sounds of another and then still another bolt of lightning. Oh? Breeza snapped. Malice cast her daughter a threatening glare but didn't have time to continue that argument. The normal method of attack by a drow house would involve a rush of soldiers combined with a mental barrage by the house's high-ranking clerics. Malice, though, felt no mental attack, which told her beyond any doubt that it was indeed House Hunnette that had come to her gates. The clerics of Hunnette, out of the Spider Queen's favor, apparently could not use their loft-given powers to launch the mental attack. If they had, Malice and her daughters, also out of the Spider Queen's favor, could not have hoped to counter. "'Why would they dare to attack?' Malice wondered aloud. Breeze understood her mother's reasoning. "'They are bold indeed,' she said. "'To hope that their soldiers alone could eliminate every member of our house.' Everyone in the room, every drow and men's baronson, understood the brutal and absolute punishments executed on the house that failed to eradicate another house. Such attacks were not frowned upon, but getting caught at the deed most certainly was. Ryzen, the present patron of House Duarden, came into the anteroom then, his face grim. "'We are outnumbered and outpositioned,' he said. "'Our defeat will be swift, I fear.' Malice would not accept the news. She struck Ryzen with a blow that knocked the patron halfway across the floor. Then she spun on Jarlaxle. "'You must summon your band,' Malice cried at the mercenary. "'Quickly!' "'Matron,' Jarlaxle stuttered, obviously at a loss. "'Breaking the Earth is a secretive group. We do not engage in open warfare.' To do so could invoke the wrath of the ruling council. I will pay you whatever you desire, the desperate matron mother promised. But the cost, whatever you desire, Malice snarled again. Such action, Charlaxle began. Again, 
Malice did not let him finish the argument. Save my house, mercenary, she growled. Your profits will be great, but I warn you, the cost of your failure will be far greater. Jarlaxle did not appreciate being threatened, especially by a lame matron mother whose entire world was fast crumbling around her. But in the mercenary's ears, the sweet ring of the word profits outweighed the threat of a thousand times over. After ten straight years of exorbitant rewards in the duarden hernet conflict, Jarlaxle did not doubt Malice's willingness or ability to pay as promised. Nor did he doubt that this deal would prove even more lucrative than the agreement he had struck with Matron Sinefe Hunet earlier the same day. "'As you wish,' he said to Matron Malice with a bow and a sweep of his garish hat. "'I will see what I can do.' A wink at Dinan set the elder boy on his heels as he exited the room. When the two got out on the balcony overlooking the Duarden compound, they saw that the situation was even more desperate than Ryzen had described. The soldiers of House Duarden, those still alive, were trapped in and around one of the huge stalagmite mounds anchoring the front gate. One of Hanette's flying soldiers dropped onto the balcony at the sight of a Duarden noble, but Dinan dispatched the intruder with a single blurring attack routine. "'Well done,' Jarlaxle commented, giving Dinan an approving nod. He moved to pat the elder boy Duarden on the shoulder, but Dinan slipped out of the reach. "'We have other business,' he pointedly reminded Jarlaxle. "'Call your troops, and quickly, else I fear that House Hanet will win the day.' "'Be at ease, my friend, Dinan,' Jarlaxle laughed. He pulled a white whistle from around his neck and blew into it. Dinan heard not a sound, for the instrument was magically tuned exclusively for the ears of members of Bregan de Arth. The elder boy Duarden watched in amazement as Jarlaxle calmly puffed out a specific cadence. Then he watched in even greater amazement as more than a hundred of House Hunet's soldiers turned against their comrades. Bregan de Arth owed allegiance only to Bregan de Arth. "'They could not attack us,' Malice said stubbornly, pacing about the chamber. "'The Spider Queen would not aid them in their venture.' "'They are winning without the Spider Queen's aid,' Ryzen reminded her, prudently ducking into the room's farthest corner even as he spoke the unwanted words. "'You said they would never attack,' Breeza growled at her mother. "'Even as you explained why we could not dare to attack them!' Breeza remembered their conversation vividly, for it was she who had suggested the open attack on House Hunet. Malice had scolded her harshly and publicly, and now Breeza meant to return the humiliation. Her voice dripped of angry sarcasm as she aimed each word at her mother. Could it be that Matron Malice Duarden has erred? Malice's reply came in the form of a glare that wavered somewhere between rage and terror. Breeza returned the threatening look without ambiguity, and suddenly the matron mother of House Duarden did not feel so very invincible and sure of her actions. She started forward nervously a moment later when Maya, the youngest of the Duarden daughters, entered the room. "'They have breached the house?' Breeza cried, assuming the worst. She grabbed at her snake-headed whip. "'And we have not even begun our preparations for defense!' "'No,' Maya quickly corrected. "'No enemies have crossed the balcony.' The battle has turned against House Hunet. As I knew it would, Malice observed, pulling herself straight and speaking pointedly at Breeza. Foolish is the house that moves without the favor of Loth. 
Despite her proclamation, though, Malice guessed that more than the judgments of the Spider Queen had come into play out in the courtyard. Her reasoning led her inescapably to Jarlaxle and the untrustworthy band of rogues. Jarlaxle stepped off the balcony and used his innate drow abilities to levitate down to the cavern floor. Seeing no need to involve himself in the battle that was obviously under control, Dinan rested back and watched the mercenary go, considering all that had just transpired. Jarlaxle had played both sides off against the other, and once again the mercenary and his band had been the only true winners. Bregandiarth was undeniably unscrupulous, but Dinan had to admit undeniably effective. Dinan found that he liked the renegade. "'The accusation has been properly delivered to Matron Benray?' Malice asked Breeza when the light of Norbondal, the magically heated stalagmite mound that served as the time clock of Menzoberranzan, began its steady climb, making the dawn of the next day. "'The ruling house expected the visit,' Breeza replied with a smirk. "'All the city whispers of the attack,' and of how House Tuarden repelled the invaders of House Hanet. Malice futilely tried to hide her vain smile. She enjoyed the attention and the glory that she knew would be lavished upon her house. The ruling council will be convened this very day, Breeza went on, no doubt to the dismay of Matron Sinefe Hanet and her doomed children. Malice nodded her agreement. To eradicate a rival house in Menza Baranzan was a perfectly acceptable practice among the drow, but to fail in the attempt, to leave even one witness of noble blood alive to make an accusation, invited the judgment of the ruling council, a wrath that wrought absolute destruction in its wake. A knock turned them both toward the room's ornate door. "'You are summoned, matron,' Ryzen said as he entered. "'Matron Benray has sent a chariot for you.' Malice and Breeza exchanged hopeful but nervous glances. When punishment fell upon House Honnette, House Tuarden would move into the eighth rank of the city hierarchy, a most desirable position. Only the matron mothers of the top eight houses were accorded a seat of the city's ruling council. "'Already?' Breeza asked her mother. Malice only shrugged in reply and followed Ryzen out of the room and down to the house's balcony. Ryzen offered her a hand of assistance, which she promptly and stubbornly slapped away, her pride apparent with every move. Malice stepped over the railing and floated down to the courtyard where the bulk of her remaining soldiery was gathered. The floating blue glowing disc bearing the insignia of House Benray hovered just outside the blasted adamantine gate of the Duarden compound. Malice proudly strode through the gathered crowd. Dark elves fell over each other trying to get out of her way. This was her day, she decided, the day she achieved the seat on the ruling council, the position she so greatly deserved. Matron Mother, I will accompany you through the city, offered Dinan, standing at the gate. You will remain here with the rest of the family, Malice corrected. The summons is for me alone. How can you know? Dinan questioned, but he realized he had overstepped his rank as soon as the words had left his mouth. By the time Malice turned her reprimanding glare toward him, he had already disappeared into a mob of soldiers. "'Proper respect!' Malice muttered under her breath, and she instructed the nearest soldier to remove a section of the propped-up tied gate. With a final victorious glance at her subjects, Malice stepped out and took a seat on the floating disc. 
This was not the first time that Malice had accepted such an invitation from Machen Benray, so she was not the least bit surprised with several Benray clerics moved out from the shadows to encircle the floating disk in a protective guard. The last time Malice had made this trip, she had been very tentative, not really understanding Benray's intent in summoning her. This time, though, Malice folded her arms defiantly across her chest and let the curious onlookers view her in all the splendor of her victory. Malice accepted the stairs proudly, feeling positively superior. Even when the disc reached the fabulous web-like fence of House Benray, with its thousand marching guards and towering stalagmite and stalactite structures, Malice's pride had not diminished. She was of the ruling council now, or soon would be. No longer did she have to feel intimidated anywhere in the city, or so she thought. "'Your presence is requested in the chapel,' One of Ben Ray's clerics said to her, and the disc came to a stop at the base of the great domed building's sweeping stairs. Malice stepped down and ascended the polished stones. As soon as she entered, she noticed a figure sitting on one of the chairs atop the raised central altar. The seated drow, the only other person visible in the chapel, apparently did not notice that Malice had entered. She sat back comfortably, watching the huge illusionary image at the top of the dome shift through its forms— first appearing as a gigantic spider, then a beautiful drow female. As she moved closer, Malice recognized the robes of a matron mother, and she assumed, as she had all along, that it was matron Benray herself, the most powerful figure in all of Mensa Baronzen, awaiting her. Malice made her way up the altar's stairs, coming up behind the seated drow. Not waiting for an invitation, she boldly walked around to greet the other matron mother. It was not, however, the ancient and emaciated form of Matron Benray that Malice Duarden encountered on the dais of the Benray Chapel. The seated Matron Mother was not old beyond the years of a drow, and as withered and dried as some bloodless corpse. Indeed, this drow was no older than Malice, and quite diminutive. Malice recognized her all too well. "'Sinefe!' she cried, nearly toppling. "'Malice?' the other replied calmly. A thousand troublesome possibilities rolled through Malice's mind. Sinefe Hennet should have been huddling in fear in her doomed house, awaiting the annihilation of her family. Yet here Sinefe sat, comfortably in the hallowed quarters of Menza Bronson's most important family. "'You do not belong in this place!' Malice protested, her slender fist clenched at her side. She considered the possibilities of attacking her rival then and there, of throttling Sinefe with her own hands." "'Be at ease, Malice,' Sinefe remarked casually. "'I am here by the invitation of Matron Benray, as are you.' The mention of Matron Benray and the reminder of where they were calmed Malice considerably. One did not act out of sorts in the chapel of House Benray. Malice moved to the opposite end of the circular dais and took a seat, her gaze never leaving the smugly smiling face of Sinefe Hanette. After a few interminable moments of silence, Malice had to speak her mind. "'It was House Sonnet that attacked my family in the last dock of Narbondo,' she said. "'I have many witnesses to this fact. There can be no doubt.' "'None,' Sinefe replied, her agreement catching Malice off guard. "'You admit the deed?' she balked. "'Indeed,' said Sinefe. "'Never have I denied it.' "'Yet you live!' Malice sneered. The laws of Menzaboranzin demand justice upon you and your house. Justice? 
Sinefe laughed at the absurd notion. Justice had never been more than a facade and a means of keeping the pretense of order in chaotic Menzabaranzan. I acted as the Spider Queen demanded of me. If the Spider Queen approved of your methods, you would have been victorious, Malice reasoned. Not so, interrupted another voice. Malice and Sinefe turned about just as Matron Ben Ray magically appeared, sitting comfortably in the chair farthest back on the dais. Malice wanted to scream out at the withered matron mother, both for spying on her conversation and for apparently refuting her claims against Sinefe. Malice had managed to survive the dangers of Benzuranzen for five hundred years, though, primarily because she understood the implications of angering one such as matron Ben Ray. "'I claim the rights of accusation against House Hanette,' she said calmly. "'Granted,' replied Machin Ben Ray. "'As you have said, and as Sinefe agreed, there can be no doubt.' Malice turned triumphantly on Sinefe, but the matron mother of House Hanette still sat relaxed and unconcerned. "'Then why is she still here?' Malice cried, her tone edged in explosive violence. Sinefe is an outlaw. She... We have not argued against your words, Matron Benray interrupted. House Hunnett attacked and failed. The penalties for such a deed are well known and agreed upon, and the ruling council will convene this very day to see that justice is carried through. "'Then why is Sinefe here?' Malice demanded. "'Do you doubt the wisdom of my attack?' Sinefe asked Malice, trying to keep a chuckle under her breath. "'You were defeated,' Malice reminded her matter-of-factly. "'That alone should provide your answer.' "'Loth demanded the attack,' said Matron Benray. "'Why, then, was Halsonet defeated?' Malice asked stubbornly, "'If the Spider Queen—I did not say that the Spider Queen had imbued her blessings upon House Hunnett,' Matron Benray interrupted, somewhat crossly. Malice shifted back in her seat, remembering her place and her predicament. "'I only said that Loth demanded the attack,' Matron Benray continued. For ten years all of Menzoberranzan has suffered the spectacle of your private war. The intrigue and excitement wore away many years ago. Let me assure you both, it had to be decided. And it was, declared Malice, raising from her seat. House Duarden has proven victorious, and I claim the rights of accusation against Sinefe Hunnett and her family. Sit down, Malice, Sinefe said. There is more to this than your simple rights of accusation. Malice looked to Matron Ben Ray for confirmation, though, considering the present situation, she could not doubt Sinefe's words. It is done, Matron Ben Ray said to her. House Duarden has won. "'and House Hunnett will be no more.' Malice fell back into her seat, smiling smugly at Sinefe. Still, though, the matron mother of House Hunnett did not seem to least bit concerned. "'I will watch the destruction of your house with great pleasure,' 
Malice assured her rival. She turned to Ben Ray. When will the punishment be exacted? It is already done, Matron Ben May replied mysteriously. But Sinefe lives, Malice cried. No, the withered matron mother corrected. She who was Sinefe Honnett lives. Now Malice was beginning to understand. House Ben Ray had always been opportunistic. Could it be that Matron Ben Ray was stealing the high priestess of House Honnett to add to her own collection? You will shelter her? Malice dared to ask. No, Matron Ben Ray replied evenly. That task will fall to you. Malice's eyes went wide. Of all the many duties she'd ever been appointed in her days as a high priestess of Loth, she could not think of one more distasteful. She is my enemy. You ask that I give her shelter? She is your daughter. Matron Benray shot back. Her tone softened, and a wry smile cracked her thin lips. Your eldest daughter returned from the travels to Chednesad, or some other city of our kin. Why are you doing this? Malice demanded. It is unprecedented. Not completely correct, replied Matron Benray. Her fingers tapped together out in front of her while she sank back within her thoughts, remembering some of the strange consequences of the endless line of battles within the Drow City. Outwardly, your observations are correct, she continued to explain to Malice. But surely you are wise enough to know what many things occur behind the appearances in Menzo Baranson. House Annette must be destroyed. That cannot be changed, and all the nobles of House Hunet must be slaughtered. It is, after all, the civilized thing to do. She paused a moment to ensure that Malice was fully comprehending the meaning of her next statement. They must appear, at least, to be slaughtered. And you will arrange this? Malice asked. I already have, Matron Benray assured her. But what is the purpose? When House Hunnett initiated its attack against you, did you call upon the Spider Queen in your struggles? Matron Benray asked bluntly. The question startled Malice, and the expected answer upset her even a little bit. And when House Hunnett was repelled, Matron Benray went on coldly, did you give praise to the Spider Queen? Did you call upon a handmaiden of Loth in your moment of victory, Malice Duarden? Am I on trial here? Malice cried. You know the answer, Matron Benray. She looked at Sinefe uncomfortably as she replied, fearing that she might be giving some valued information away. You are aware of my situation concerning the Spider Queen. I dare not summon a Yarklaw until I have seen some sign that I have regained Loth's favor. And you have seen no sign? Sinefe remarked. None other than the defeat of my rival, Malice growled back at her. That was not a sign from the Spider Queen, Matron Benray assured them both. Loth did not involve herself in your struggles. She only demanded that they be finished. Is she pleased at the outcome? 
Malice asked bluntly. "'That is yet to be determined,' replied Matron Benray. "'Many years ago, Loth made clear her desires "'that Matron Duarden sit upon the ruling council. "'Beginning with the next light of Norbundle, it shall be so.' "'Malice's chin rose with pride. "'But understand your dilemma,' Matron Benray scolded her, "'rising up out of her chair.' Malice slumped back immediately. "'You have lost more than half of your soldiers,' Benray explained, "'and you do not have a large family surrounding and supporting you. "'You rule the eighth house of the city, "'yet it is known by all that you are not in the Spider Queen's favor. "'How long do you believe House Duarden will hold its position?' "'Your seat on the ruling council is in jeopardy even before you have assumed it.' Malice could not refute the ancient matron's logic. They both knew the ways of Menzaboranzan. With House Duarden so obviously crippled, some lesser house would soon take advantage of the opportunity to better its station. The attack of House Hunet would not be the last battle fought in the Duarden compound. "'So I give you Sinofe Hunet.' "'known to you now as Shanane Duarden, "'a new daughter, a new high priestess,' said Matron Benray. "'She turned to Sinefei to continue her explanation, "'but Malice found herself suddenly distracted "'as a voice called out to her thoughts in a telepathic message. "'Keep her only as long as you need, Malice Duarden,' it said. "'Malice looked around, guessing the source of the communication.' On her previous visit to House Ben-Ray, she had met Ben-Ray's Mind Flare, a telepathic beast. The creature was nowhere in sight, but neither had Matron Ben-Ray been when Malice had entered the chapel. Malice looked around alternately at the remaining empty seats atop the dais, but the stone furniture showed no signs of any occupants. A second telepathic message left her no doubts. You will know when the time is right. "'And the remaining fifty of House Honnet's soldiers,' Matron Benray was saying. "'Do you agree, Matron Malice?' Malice looked at Sinefei, an expression might have been acceptance of wicked irony. "'I do,' she replied. "'Go, then, Shanane Duarden,' Matron Benray instructed Sinefei. "'Join your remaining soldiers in the courtyard,' My wizards will get you to House Duarden in secrecy. Sinefei cast a suspicious glance Malice's way, then moved out of the Grand Chapel. I understand, Malice said to her hostess when Sinefei was gone. You understand nothing, Matron Benray yelled back at her, suddenly enraged. I have done all that I may for you, Malice Duarden. It was Loth's wish that you sit upon the ruling council, and I have arranged at great personal cost for that to be so. Malice knew then, beyond any doubt, that House Benray had prompted House Hunet into action. How deep did Matron Benray's influence go? Malice wondered. Perhaps the withered matron mother also had anticipated and possibly arranged the actions of Jarlaxel and the soldiers of Bregan the Arth, ultimately the deciding factor in the battle. She would have to find out about that possibility, Malice promised herself. Jarlaxle had dipped his greedy fingers quite deeply into her purse. No more, Matron Benray continued. 
Now you are left to your own wiles. You have not found the favor of Roth, and that is the only way you and House to Arden will survive. Malice's fist clenched the arm of her chair so tightly that she almost expected to hear the stone cracking beneath it. She had hoped, with the defeat of House Annette, that she had put the blasphemous deeds of her youngest son behind her. "'You know what must be done,' said Matron Benray. "'Correct the wrong, Malice. I have put myself forward on your behalf. I will not tolerate continued failure.' "'The arrangements have been explained to us, Matron Mother,' Dinan said to Malice when she returned to the adamantine gate of House to Arden. He followed Malice across the compound and then levitated up beside her to the balcony outside the noble quarters of the house. "'All the family is gathered in the anteroom,' Dinan went on. "'Even the newest member,' he added with a wink. Malice did not respond to her son's feeble attempt at humor. She pushed Dinan aside roughly and stormed down the central corridor, commanding the anteroom door to open with a single powerful word. The family scrambled out of her way as she crossed to her throne on the far side of the spider-shaped table. They had anticipated a long meeting to learn the new situation confronting them and the challenges that they must overcome. What they got instead was a brief glimpse at the rage burning within Matron Malice. She glared at them alternately, letting each of them know beyond any doubt that she would not accept anything less than she demanded. Her voice grating as though her mouth was filled with pebbles, she growled, "'Find Drizzt and bring him to me!' Brisa started to protest, but Malice shot her a glare so utterly cold and threatening that it stole the words away. The eldest daughter, as stubborn as her mother and always ready for an argument, averted her eyes. And no one else in the anteroom, though they shared Breeze's unspoken concerns, made any motion to argue. Malice then left them to sort out the specifics of how they would accomplish the task. Details were not as important to Malice. The only part she meant to play in all of this was the thrust of the ceremonial dagger into her youngest son's chest.' 